I'm guessing that if I went into your kitchen right now and opened up um, a cupboard, I might find uh, shelves overflowing with coffee mugs like this. I don't know how this happens, um, but, but we end up with so many coffee mugs. I know in my household we have four people and we probably have five, six, maybe more mugs per person in our cupboard. Way too many mugs for us to use. And I try to go through regularly and, um, and thin the collection out, but somehow um, it just keeps growing back again. This mug right here was a gift that was given to me and it has a, a Bible verse on it. Um, chances are you might have a, a, a mug like this that's got a, a favorite or a, an often quoted a memorable Bible verse on it. The letter that we're going to explore together over the coming weeks and months is a letter that is full of, um, of verses that I like to call coffee mug verses, um, verses that are really memorable, often quoted, and people love to, to put them on things like mugs. Verses like this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or how about this? Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. My God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But the reality is that if we're going to be transformed um, by this letter to the Philippian church, it's not going to be because we um, just focus on these highlighted verses. But instead, if we are going to be transformed by Jesus together through the study of this letter, it's going to be because we are shaped deeply by the message that Jesus communicated through Paul in this letter. And in order to hear this message, we need to understand the full scope of the letter. And so this morning is gonna be more of a morning of, of teaching than preaching, um, a morning to, to look together at the background of this letter, to, to explore together the circumstances um, of the Philippian church and the city that they lived in, and to get an overview of Paul's message in this letter. First thing that you'll notice about this letter, and maybe if you're already familiar with Philippians, um, you'll know that this is a letter that is, is known for its joy. It's, it's a letter that is filled with uh, calls from Paul to his readers to be, uh, to be a people who rejoice, and then Paul reflects on his own joy, even in the midst of suffering. And this might not seem strange until you realize that Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison. Paul was writing this letter in chains for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and when you're in prison by Rome, um, you don't get fed, you don't get clothed, um, Rome doesn't take care of you if you're a prisoner. And so when the Philippian church heard that Paul was imprisoned, um, they got together and they pooled their finances together and they sent a large gift with a man from their congregation named Epaphroditus. And they sent Epaphroditus off to where Paul was imprisoned. It could have um, perhaps been in Rome. 
And when Epaphroditus gets there, he gives um, the finances to, to Paul so that he can, can survive while he's waiting his trial, a trial that will determine if uh, charges are dropped and he's free to go about his business or if he'll end up being executed by the empire. And so, so Epaphroditus is there to both give the gift to Paul as well as to just be there and, and help him to be a support and a comfort to him. And Epaphroditus lets Paul know about uh, the Philippian church, how they're doing since the last time Paul had visited them, what, they're, what it is that they're facing. And so then Paul writes this letter in return, this letter to both thank the Philippian church for their love, their support, their partnership in the gospel, as well as to, to encourage them and to bring a message to them, a message to stand firm because Paul knows that they even now are facing the same kind of, of trials and resistance that he himself is facing, uh, persecution, uh, resistance because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, a letter that starts out this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we look at this, this letter together, um, a few things that are going to help us in understanding it are to understand the background to the, the church in Philippi. Um, the church in Philippi is in a city that is a colony of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire is the powerhouse of, of the ancient world. Um, and it's when the empire came in and, and fought wars and took over lands and regions and other um, empires and consolidated it all, um, there was a sense that peace and salvation was brought to the known world through the hands of Caesar, through the hands of the, the emperor of Rome. There was this idea of, of Pax Romana, uh, the peace that Rome brought. It was a peace and a salvation that was brought uh, through the sword. It was bought, brought through war. It was brought through victory, through conquest. Um, and for many, if you were on the right side of the Roman Empire, this was a great thing. Uh, you, If you were a, a merchant, you saw the, the pirates on the high seas defeated. You saw bandits 
um, and lawlessness along the roads um, taken care of. Uh, Rome brought in their, their laws, um, a, a hard-fisted um, sense of justice. So there was, there was peace. There was prosperity. There was economic growth. Uh, for a lot of people, the Roman Empire was a great thing. And in the Roman Empire, there were what were called colonies. Um, and these colonies were, were cities that were set up to be miniature Romes in the midst of a, a conquered nation. A nation that had its own culture, its own language, its own customs. And these colonies would be set up to be little Romes, little outposts of the culture, the customs, the language, the laws, the art of Rome itself. And so Philippi was one of these colonies. It was um, given the, the status of a colony because it was very valuable to the Roman Empire. Uh, Philippi was located in northeastern Greece in a region called Macedonia. It was only a few miles inland from a, a seaport village. Uh, it had gold mines in the mountains around it. It was a location of many pivotal, crucial battles, uh, wars in Roman history because of its location. And it had a, a major highway that ran right through the center of the city, a highway that connected Rome to Asia Minor, to the rest of the empire. And so Rome wanted this, this city set up in a way that there would be peace and stability and for it to be an, an outpost of the ways of Rome. And so when a lot of the, the wars had been fought um, and peace had been acquired, there were all of these soldiers who were retiring and would likely come back to Rome looking for land uh, looking for, for jobs, for careers, and Rome was already filled to overflowing. And so um, the emperor decided to make Philippi a colony and to send all of its retired soldiers there to give them land, to give them status as citizens, um, to allow them to be exempt from a lot of the taxation that the rest of the conquered nations around them um, were subject to. And they could have uh, Roman laws and the Roman justice system there. And so because of all of these soldiers, these retired soldiers living there, um, at the time of the, the writing of the letter to the Philippian church, probably would have been a lot of the grandkids of those soldiers from two different wars. Um, this city was, was known for its patriotic nationalism, um, both because of all the soldiers that were there, as well as people's sense of indebtedness to Rome, their sense of indebtedness to Caesar because of the, the great benefits that they were, um, were subject to because of being a colony. And so... This was, this was a city that, that both had its, its Greek culture and language and customs as well as Roman, Latin language and culture and customs kind of all layered on top of each other. It had a mixture of, of Roman and Greek gods that were worshipped there. 
um, as well as the worship of Caesar himself. Um, a while after the, the letter to the Philippians was written, there were actually two different uh, temples set up in the city in order to, to worship the emperor. Caesar was, was known as, as a god, known as, as divine. Um, certain different Caesars throughout history were known as the son of the divine known as Savior and Lord, known as Lord of the entire world. That was Nero, who um, was most likely emperor at the time of this letter's writing. Um, his favorite title was that, to be known as Lord of the, of the whole world. And this, this word Lord is the word kyrios. It's the word that we read here in the opening um, lines of Paul's letter, where Jesus Christ is described as Lord, as, as Kyrios. This is a word um, that casually could just be a, a sign of respect, like saying sir. Um, it could also be a word that would um, be a title that would be used for a, a slave master, um, that they are Lord. Um, but especially when it was used in reference to the emperor, curios uh, was a word that meant that you were the divine ruler of all. The divine ruler of all is, is what that term curios meant. Another thing that will help us as we look at the, the background to this letter is to understand a, a word, a term that comes up a lot in this letter, um, and it's the term gospel, the term gospel. This, this term gospel was not um, a word that was new or coined by the Christian community. Instead, this was a word that was well known at the time. It was, um, it was a word that was associated with the, the birth or the ascension of a new emperor. It, it's a word that means uh, the, the good news. And so in the, in the time of the Roman Empire, um, when there was a, a king, an emperor who died, um, it would be a time of potential chaos because there could potentially be wars that might be fought, um, civil unrest as maybe different factions tried to gain power and control. And so when a new emperor uh, um, came to the throne, they would send out heralds throughout the nation, throughout the empire to preach the gospel to preach the good news in the cities, the good news that there was a new king on the throne. To preach the good news that the emperor was Lord. And so this, this was good news because there would be peace and prosperity and justice um, in short, uh, the gospel meant that there was salvation at hand. The good news that, that we have a king and he will bring salvation to all who live under his good reign. Is any of this language familiar to you? Son of God, Savior and Lord, 
gospel good news of a king who brings peace and salvation. These are terms that are all over the New Testament and all over this letter. Paul describes Jesus Christ as Lord, as Kyrios. And Paul talks about striving and struggling for the gospel, being imprisoned because of the gospel, because of this good news. And he doesn't know if he'll be executed or set free because of preaching the good news. Good news that can get you arrested and potentially killed. What we think of in the church when we think of gospel, um, a lot of times is, is this common idea. Common idea that um, the gospel equals Jesus Christ was born, he lived a sinless life, he died, he um, rose from the dead, and that in his death we have forgiveness of sins and now we can live with him forever. In short, this is kind of what a lot of the church thinks of when we think of the term gospel. But simply put, um, this is only part of the story. Um, this is only part of the good news. But the reality is when Paul and other um, authors on the New Testament use this specific term, gospel, they are using it with the idea in mind that the rest of the world around them had, that the gospel was a royal announcement that a new king was on the throne, a king who was ruling over the world. And so when, when Paul uses this term, gospel, he uses it knowing that he is declaring that Jesus Christ is this king, not Caesar. Caesar is not Lord of the whole world, but in fact, Jesus Christ is. Uh, I heard a pastor talk about this, this dueling ideas of gospel and bluntly saying that um, for Paul and, and the Christians in Philippi, if they were just to go about um, preaching and declaring the good news that Jesus forgives our sins and that he died, he rose again, and we can live with him forever, um, this kind of good news would not have caused anyone to get arrested, much less killed. Because the people at the time would have heard that and just thought, okay, here's, here's another God that we could add to the other gods that we already worship. Um, and if you want to worship him, that's great. Um, and if people around me want to worship him, that's great. We'll just worship him and all of the other gods. And we'll worship him and we'll also worship Caesar. But a message like that doesn't threaten the empire. A message like that doesn't threaten the emperor himself. A message like that wouldn't get Paul thrown in jail. But the good news or the gospel, the, the royal announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus Christ who forgives sins is in fact the Son of God and Lord and Savior. Now that message, that gospel, might upset 
the city around you. It might upset the empire that you live in, and it might even threaten the emperor to the point that he will have you thrown in jail. A message that Jesus is Savior and Lord and not Caesar, that he is the one who brings salvation and peace and not the Roman Empire, that all authority is his, and that one day all knees will bow and all tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Kyrios, is Lord of the entire world. Now this is something that would be unsettling to the world around them. What was inscribed on the placard above Jesus' head when he was crucified? It was a placard that read, uh, King of the Jews. And when Pilate was, um, was showing Jesus to the crowd, and he said, here is your king, and the crowds responded back by saying, we have no king but Caesar. They said this because someone claiming to be king in place of Caesar they knew was a dangerous thing. It was something that could cause the wrath of the empire to come down on you. This kind of message declaring Jesus as king is a dangerous message. And this is why Paul writes of the struggle he has in prison. And this is why Paul writes that he has heard that the Philippian church is facing similar struggles themselves because of the gospel, because they are people who is standing up and saying that in fact Jesus is king and it is in him that peace and salvation are found. Not only could the Philippian church be facing potential arrest and execution like Paul was, um, but even if it didn't get that far, there was a lot of resistance and um, negative blowback that they are most likely experiencing because of following Jesus as Lord. The people around them in Philippi, these, these patriotic nationalist people, um, would have looked at them and, and said that the Philippian Christians were were unpatriotic, that they were bad citizens, that they were bad for the colony itself and bad for the empire. Because in their mind, the gods that they worshiped are the ones who care for and protect the city and the people. And the emperor and the empire of Rome is the one who has brought peace and prosperity and salvation and justice and the opportunity for life to flourish. And so if the, the people, the Christians of Philippi are no longer worshiping the pantheon of gods, if the people of Philippi are undermining Rome's authority and Caesar's authority, then the people around them would likely look at them and say, you're, you're putting our whole, our whole city in jeopardy. Um, you're threatening the, the wrath of the gods. Um, you're threatening the wrath of Rome. And on top of that, if, if you aren't worshiping Caesar as Lord over the whole world, um, how ungrateful are you? Don't you know that it was Caesar who, who gave us the gift of citizenship? 
Don't you know that it was our grandparents who fought in the, these major wars for Rome in order to, to give you the opportunity to live in this great city? And now you want to thumb your nose at the sacrifice of our grandparents and you want to, to declare someone else, this, this crucified criminal named Jesus, as the true Lord over the whole world? You live here in our colony and you don't want to give honor to our king? Not only is this unpatriotic, it's, it's treasonous. And so likely the Christians of Philippi were facing um, ostracization from rejection from their, from their family. Um, likely they would have been kicked out from the different craftsmen's guilds that they were a part of. Um, it's likely that they, they lost um, clients, that they lost work, and people around them looked at them and said that they were living their lives as, as bad citizens of the Roman Empire. And Paul instead is asking the Christians in Philippi to, to not view themselves as citizens of the Roman Empire, but to view themselves as citizens of, of the colony of heaven, to strive together with one heart and one mind as an outpost of heaven, a, a colony of heaven here on earth, bringing the kingdom of God's culture and, and its, um, its values, bringing true justice and peace and human flourishing to the world around us, uh, uh, to live their lives as, as a colony uh, of citizens of the empire of heaven who preach the gospel, preach the good news, the royal announcement that Jesus Christ is king of the universe. And so this is why Paul writes the letter. Um, not only to thank them for the constant support that the Philippian church has shown him throughout his, his ministry and specifically while he was imprisoned, um, but to encourage them with the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, the example of Jesus Christ and his suffering, his willingness to, to lay aside um, all of the, the honor that he was due in order to come to, to be humbled, to serve the world, and to suffer and die at the hands of the empire. And Paul wrote this letter um, so that the, the church would see the example of Jesus Christ and that they would be encouraged to have to allow the, their life and the story of their life, including their potential suffering for the sake of the gospel, to be wrapped up and caught up in the greater story of Jesus Christ and the work that this Kyrios, this Lord of the whole world, was unfolding in the world around them. And then in the, in the letter, we'll see Paul using his own life and the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus um, to, to show an example of what it looks like to follow that pattern of Jesus's life. And then he closes out the letter by encouraging the Philippians to, to live out the example of Jesus Christ in their own lives, in the way that they live, in the way that they interact with one another and the way that they interact with the world around them, shining like stars in the universe, 
um, to live out the example of Jesus Christ in, in the way that they, they think and have their minds shaped. And so this is why, why Paul writes the letter to the church in Philippi. And so for us, as we spend the next um, weeks and months in this letter, we're going to be looking a lot at, at Jesus Christ as Lord or Kyrios over the whole world, um, that Jesus is King and not Caesar. Um, we're going to be looking a lot through this letter um, over this idea of the gospel, this royal announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the one who brings peace and justice and salvation. And all of this is going to be centered around Jesus, just like it is in this letter, um, centered around Jesus and the invitation to pattern our lives after the life of Jesus. Um, together, as we live as an outpost, as a colony of heaven here on earth, submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, submitted to Jesus, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. So this morning, I want to leave us with this question, a question to, to think about throughout the week. How do I feel about Jesus as both Savior and Lord? Because I think for a lot of us, maybe the Savior part is easy to embrace. Like the colonists in Rome, uh, or the colonists of, of the Roman Empire, they, they saw the great benefit of, of Caesar being their Savior. The benefit of, of peace and prosperity, of a thriving life, all around them they could see the benefits. Caesar saves. And, and for us, um, it's easy to embrace Jesus as someone who saves us, who forgives us, um, who gives us eternal life. This is all great, amazing benefits that we can um, add on to our lives. But I think the harder thing, um, the, the, the thing that causes us to struggle is embracing Jesus as Lord, as Kyrios, as, as the king who rules and reigns and uh, the king whom our lives need to be submitted to. Because if Jesus is just savior, he can be added on to the rest of our life. He can be added on to the things that we're already doing and the things that we're already embracing. Like, um, like the people in Rome who could worship other gods and then just add Jesus on as a, another deity to worship. But if Jesus is in fact Lord of the entire universe, if Jesus is in fact the, the royal king of all, then he can't just be added on to my, my life. He can't just have a, a part of me. Um, if he is Lord, then everything has to change about my life. My life's not my own anymore. I don't get to be Lord of my own life. I don't get to be the one who sets myself up um, as as Lord and King, as ruler, um, as the person who reigns over my own life. Americans pride ourselves on not having lords, of not having kings. I mean, we fought a whole war about that. Um, we have no king is our cry as American citizens. We, we love that we're free from the demands that a king would make on his subjects. The American dream is to, to be your own boss, 
to command your own destiny, to be the captain of your own ship. And if Jesus is Savior and Lord, then we cannot be our own Lord anymore. We have someone else that we are serving now. We don't just live for ourselves anymore. We live as citizens of his colony here on earth, following his laws and customs and for his purposes. So will we switch our allegiance over to Jesus as Savior and Lord of our life? I think when we do, we will find, like Paul, that no matter what circumstances we face, um, that as we live our lives under Jesus's reign, giving our all for the good news, that that is where we will find joy and fulfillment and peace. That Jesus as Savior and Lord is the one who brings true peace and salvation to our lives.